important phrase in all of the scriptures, he settled down to those two words from Romans, but now. And he said this, there are no more wonderful words in the whole of scripture than those two words, but now. Once you were far from God, Romans 6, verse 21, but now you have been set free from sin. Once you were controlled by the sinful nature, Romans 7, 5, and 6, but by dying to what once bound us, but now you've been released from the law to serve in the new way of the Spirit. And so that little phrase, but now, might be the greatest words that have ever been spoken over your life and mine, and in history. And so we're going to spend the weeks leading up to Easter studying a little bit of the book of Romans. And we're going to study just four chapters. So let me give you just a quick picture of the book of Romans, and then we'll dive into our specific topic in chapter 2 this morning. So you'll want to flip to page 28 in your journals, and there's space there for you to take some notes if you're a note taker. Uh, First thing to point out in the overview is just some of the connective points between our series which we finished last week in Genesis and the book of uh, Romans. Uh, Really, in some ways, Romans could be arguably the genesis of the New Testament. We talked a lot in the book of Genesis about how it establishes the groundwork or the framework for understanding so much of what else comes uh, throughout the rest of the scriptures. And really, just like Genesis is a book about forming our worldview, Romans is intending to do the same thing and helping us understand how should we answer questions like, what is God like? What's he doing in the world? What is God's character fundamentally like? Uh, What's the meaning and significance of Christ's life, his death, and resurrections? The Gospels give us a more narrative account, and then Jesus' words as to how he understands that. And then the book of Romans is one of the early theologians in the life of the church and one of the early missionaries that goes out into parts of the Mediterranean world named Paul, and he begins to reflect and try and teach for 20 years of his life what was the life of Jesus really all about? What is the significance of it to us today? And then questions like, how should we respond if these things are true? And so there's a lot of weight in the book of Romans. It's a very, very dense book, uh, philosophically and theologically. And so if you're reading through the book of Romans, it's a quite different structure than the book of Genesis. And so there's lots of what we call lightly around the office, on-topic muttering and off-topic muttering. On-topic muttering is when you're in a meeting and you're kind of muttering to yourself about something that's related to the particular discussion at hand. Off-topic muttering is when you're muttering, hopefully, inside of your head, and it has nothing to do with what's going on in this particular time. But it's somehow kind of connected in your head and in your thinking. And so the book of Romans, if you're reading it through, sometimes you come across something and you think, where in the world is he going with this? It's not a very linear book in a lot of ways, even though he's making an argument philosophically and theologically. He'll come around to something and then he'll kind of go on an off-topic muttering about something which seems unrelated and then come back to it a little bit later on. And so just be aware of that when you're reading through the book uh, of Romans is that you just have to approach it quite differently than approaching the book of Genesis. Uh, Our plan is to teach through chapters three, uh, sorry, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, and chapter 6. 
Uh, and so we won't get to all of the book of Romans. There's just way, way too much there. You say, why not chapter 4? Chapter 4 is the only book, uh, chapter in the book of Romans that you can read, and it makes perfect sense just by reading it. So really, there's not a lot more that can be added to that in terms of Sunday morning teaching environment. Um, it's, it's the only one that's kind of self-explanatory in some ways in the book of Romans. So that's kind of where we're headed. Uh, and those are some of the questions that we're going to keep in mind as we look into the book of Romans. And we're going to just start today by looking at that first one and pressing into that a little bit and asking questions of how can we understand a little bit more about what God is like, what is, uh, he's revealed to us in his word, and what are the implications for that? And so chapter 1 and chapter 2 take a pretty hard look at a particular facet of that. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Romans chapter 2, and we'll pray uh, as we begin to look into God's word together this morning. So God, we want to say uh, thanks for this opportunity that we have to gather in this place today. We want to say thanks for uh, your Holy Spirit. We want to say thanks for your word and thanks for your son Jesus. And Father, we pray that as we look into your word this morning, we agree together that it's truth and that it reveals who you are and how we should live. And so we orient ourselves by it and we submit ourselves to it again this morning in this place. And God, we pray that you would teach us. And for those of us who have questions, who are searching, who are seeking, would you meet each and every one in this place this morning, Jesus? In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Well, when we come to uh, the book of Romans, one of the questions that comes to my mind is a question that was posed by a friend of mine, and I think it's a, a decent question. We got into lots of conversations over our friendship about issues of faith and what it meant to be a Christian and how to live as a Christian. And he said, you know what? Came to the place where he said, you know what, Brad? I think I could become a Christian except for two things. The first thing is a bit more of an objection, and it's just based on my observations about people that call themselves Christians. And he says, I, I just have to say, Christians as a whole, I, as I observe them, he says, I don't observe you this way, although you may be. I, Christians as a whole are pretty judgmental. And so I have a hard time kind of associating myself with that type of a group of people. And then he said, my second objection is that as I read a little bit in the Bible, I think I, I get where Christians get their judgmentalism from. It seems to come from God because God seems pretty judgmental to me, even angry. And I mean, what's up with this about God? Is God mad at people fundamentally? A lot of discussion around things like God's wrath and God's anger and judgment and things. It just seems like that would be a problem for me, he said. And therefore, I think if people as Christians are kind of judgmental because God's judgmental, then I don't know if I necessarily want to go there. I think it's a fair question for us to wrestle with. And in popular culture, this often, this idea of God's character often gets expressed uh, in cartoons. For example... Uh, this cartoon, which has a picture of, uh, of God's picture of maybe the world and uh, God's st a stress ball. And if God gets a little bit stressed out, what does he do? Uh, well, he kind of takes the earth and he kind of gives a little squish and kind of he's just, he's got a lot of kind of stress in his life. And so therefore the earth is just one big giant stress ball that God has. Or, or this one from the far side, which kind of answers some people's minds the question, what do you think God's doing up in heaven right now? And some people think, well, he's up in heaven, he's watching, and he's waiting for me to do something bad. 
and his divine hand hovers over the shift key, and as soon as I do something bad, boom, he's going to get me with a piano. It's going to drop on my head, metaphorically or literally speaking, and he's going to come down hard on me. Or, or this one, which actually I found in an evangelistic tract from the 1950s that says, God must pour out his wrath on sin, so God's got his fist and sinful humanity's under there, and boom, God's going to come down and just get us with his fist. Doesn't that just make you want to become a Christian right now from reading that evangelistic tract from the 50s? So a thinking person has to wrestle with the question, what is God like? Is this God's fundamental orientation towards the world and towards us as human beings? And so what do we do with the biblical teaching on things like God's wrath, which comes up in the book of Romans. And so I'd like to suggest this morning from Romans chapter 2 and looking back a little bit into chapter 1, that this idea about God's wrath, we have to first of all separate it from some of the cartoony versions that are more popular in our thinking, and understand that this idea of God's wrath is actually profoundly good news for us. And we'll see why as we go into Romans chapter 2. The first thing that comes up in Romans chapter 2, it actually begins back in Romans chapter 1, uh, verse 18. And depending on what translation that you have, depends. it might actually add a little bit to the confusion around this issue. Because the New Living Translation and other translations use the words like anger, uh, starting in verse 18, to describe what it is that God is thinking and oriented towards. So that's not necessarily a, a great translation of the word that was used uh, in the original language that was written, which was Greek. Uh, and the, a better idea is this idea of wrath against unrighteousness. Now, wrath is a bit of an old-fashioned word for us, and we're going to probe into, in a few minutes, a little bit about what that differentials might be between wrath and anger. So begin to think a little bit uh, about that. But Romans chapter 1, verse 18, begins to talk a little bit about this idea and says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the, all of the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And then he goes on with a discussion of natural revelation, which we talked a little bit about in our Genesis series. So we'll skip to verse 29, which says, They, these people who are suppressing God's righteousness by their wickedness, they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips. They are slanderers, they are God-haters, they are insolent, they are arrogant, they are boastful, they invent ways of doing evil, they disobey their parents, they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy, although they know God's righteous decree that only those who deserve such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these things, but they approve of those who practice them. And so he's setting up a little bit of his argument, which he'll follow in various forms throughout the rest of the book of Romans. 
He's doing a little bit what we talked about in Genesis. He's starting and saying, all right, there's a problem. Let's try and figure out what the problem is, and then let's discern how then God is responding to this problem. And so he goes on in verse 1 of chapter 2, after he's described all of those people, and sometimes it's easy for us to read a text like that and say, yeah, those people. Yeah, those are people who make distinctions in our mind, and we think, yeah, you know, um, I'm, I may have even used to be like that type of a person, but, you know, now, now I'm a, a pretty good person. I may be a Christian. Maybe I've been coming to church for a long time. Like, those types of people, like, they would be out there somewhere. We, um, whatever language you might want to use and describe in some way. But in verse 2, uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul kind of undercuts that type of thinking and says this, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you pass judgment on those and then you do the same things. Now we know, he's picking up his argument again from verse 18, that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So, when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, or you do the same things, then do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the richness of his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And so in these short five verses of uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, we learn quite a bit about God and his character and his thinking about the whole idea of evil in the world, how it's present and how he deals with it, which cycles all the way back to our discussions in Genesis chapter 3. So what's one thing that can be said that we learn about God here in chapter 2 uh, of Romans. The first thing that the text clearly says to us is that God is just. That God's fundamental orientation is that he operates out of a just, right, and righteous working in the world. So in verse 2, uh, as an example, it says, God, in his justice, will punish anyone who does such things. And so God is operating here out of an orientation or a standard that has been set. It's not that God is angry, as sometimes we are led to believe or are confused by. Wrath and anger are two quite different things. So let me see if I can illustrate it this way with a little bit of a story from our experience. Uh, when, we were, when we were building our house, uh, we had all kinds of interesting challenges, which we've talked to some of you about before and are a little familiar with it. One of the challenges is that uh, there was an individual who decided to sue us as a result of, uh, of some of that process. And so when the lawsuit was brought uh, before the judge and before the, the mediator, uh, the, the, we were there and then another, the other party was there and the judge was sitting and, and trying to sift through all of this. He said, she said kind of stuff and trying to figure out what really happened and then what really ought the response to have been in that situation. And so as we got into it, one of the things that I was profoundly glad about is that 
the ruling that came down that day was not based on whether or not the judge had got up and drunk enough coffee, had had enough protein that morning, that it wasn't subject to the whims of the judge's personality, that wasn't subject to uh, how they were feeling that particular day. When we sat before the judge that day, we were expecting that the judge had a standard by which they were judging from, not just, I feel that I like this person. They have a nice shirt. I should rule in their favor. Or, I don't know, I'm a little tired today. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. let's just get this over with. Uh, you're right, you're wrong. Yeah, we're done. Kind of, we're finished here. Go and make, go do something else with your time. I was quite glad that there was a standard that the judge was utilizing to operate out of and that it was in no way based on the judge's emotional responses to me, to the other individual involved in this, or to anything, actually. That there was an arbitrary standard that could be appealed to for justice. Because sometimes we get a little confused about God's wrath and we think, well, if, God, if he feels upset that day with something that's going on, that he's going to kind of respond and a piano will come dropping from the sky, metaphorically or otherwise, into my life and on my head, and that God is somehow very, he's responding because he's angry at something that has happened or that has been done. Well, anger is fundamentally an emotive or emotional response. Anger is something of a, a, a physiological and emotional reaction that we have when something comes into our lives or into our experiences for which our response then is, I am just steamed and mad to whatever level, lesser or greater, at this particular issue. It has nothing to do with the rightness or wrongness of the particular situation that's presented to us. I can get mad about something and be totally in the wrong. I can get mad that I got drugged into court for something that wasn't my fault. However, it doesn't make me or the other person right or wrong. Because anger is fundamentally an emotion that's attached to our responses to situations. And so sometimes using the language of anger we take then our emotional state and we project it onto God and think, all right, if I can get mad about something that happens, maybe that's how God is oriented. Maybe something, he looks down and sees things and he just gets mad about stuff and he responds to that out of his anger. And frankly, some of the translation doesn't help us in this regard because it supports or would seem to support that kind of thinking about God's response. And there are many instances in the Bible where uh, human characteristics are attributed to God and his actions to help us kind of get a bit of a mental picture and to be able to respond to God in some way. But this is not one of those situations. God is not acting because emotionally he's somehow upset and needs to right his, the wrongs that have happened. The, the Greek gods or the gods of uh, ancient history or Rome other cultures respond in this way. Think about all through history, about the idea of placating the gods by whatever means of sacrificing, or Andrew referenced this in our Genesis teaching series, of giving them something to kind of calm down the anger of the deity to try and get them off your case in some way. This is not at all 
what Paul is teaching us here in Romans chapter 2. God's wrath is poured out against unrighteousness because there is a standard that God has set and established. And so it's being revealed, 118 says, from heaven against the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And so we have to ask ourselves a question here, and that is, can I suppress something that I am not aware of in some way? And the answer is likely no. So therefore, if people are attempting to suppress the truth of God by their wickedness, as 118 says for us, something has told them that God has a standard that exists. And chapter 1 goes into an extensive discussion of this and how God will hold people accountable. talks a little bit about natural revelation and all of these things. But when we move into chapter 2 and coming to teach a little bit more concretely about God's wrath, God's wrath is a response not to an emotional state that God has, but that it's being poured out because of his justice. And we see this in Genesis. We see it being played out on the nightly news as we watch things in our world. There are things that are profoundly wrong in our world. And some of these things are being perpetuated by people who are profoundly wicked. And it's very, very counter to our Western notions and sensibilities to label something as wicked. But when we look at the news and when we watch things like are unfolding in Libya under the rule of a tyrant who's murdering their own citizens, our hearts cry out for justice. And we say, that is not right. That is wrong. And this is particularly where God's wrath is good news. Because God's wrath is not arbitrary. It's tied to God's sense of justice. It means that God too sees in our world things that are wrong and things that need to be vindicated in some way. And the wrath of God is therefore good news because it means that there are things to be upset about, not in, we, we experience it sometimes as emotion, but there are things that we should look at and say, that is unjust. That is wicked, it is evil, and it needs to be opposed in some way. There are things in our world which God has righteously declared to be upset about. And the wrath of God is good news because then when in Romans it declares that God will set things right, God will punish anyone who does such things. Now, lest we think that we can get off scot-free by without looking at that list and say, yeah, God is definitely going to punish people who are murderers. He will definitely punish those types of people who, oh, there's all kinds of things in that list. We'll read the list again in chapter 1 a little bit more closely. God will punish those who gossip. God will punish those who are proud and boastful. God will punish those who break their promises. God will promise the, who punish those who disobey their parents. 
And so lest we think that somehow that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things and those are evil and wicked people out there, the text reminds us and says, anybody who has broken a promise, anybody who has disobeyed their parents, anybody who's invented a new way of doing evil, it's a great phrase for those with teenagers in their home, all of us are in the category of having affronted in some way God's sense of justice. And so we learn from this text that, number one, God is just, but we also learn something about ourselves pretty quick. It is that we tend to be fairly judgmental because we tend to want God's justice poured out on things that we think are wrong. And we then, chapter 2, verse 1 says, you who judge others, yeah, you do these very, very same things. See, it's very easy for us, isn't it, to sit in our comfy chairs and watch TV and condemn other people. But by the very act of sitting in judgment over and against someone else, you're sinning, and it's not your job. God is the righteous judge. And that's where my friend, in his observations about Christians being judgmental, is correct, and they have been at points anyways. But in some ways, they're also off base. So take as an example, maybe a, a bad example, uh, let's use one from this past week. The, the Baptist Church in the States, who this past week won the right in the Supreme Court to protest military funerals. What are they protesting? They're protesting uh, how much God hates things. And they're actively really quite venomous about this. Now, it's easy for us to slip into double standards as we sit in judgment over other people. And that might be maybe an extreme example. You might think, well, I would never do something like that. I mean, that's just, A, it's in poor taste, and B, that's just maybe not the way I would approach the particular situation. But we learned very quickly that our standards and the things that says we do sit in judgment, we do some of the same kind of things. Maybe in our hearts, we might not be out there with the signs and all kinds of things, but it's easy for us to slip into the same kind of attitudes. Look at the list again from Romans chapter 1. There's some big stuff in there, but there's also just as many subtle pieces in there. And so the text reminds us, if we think, oh, I am so, I've got it all together. It's those people out there whom God is going to pour out his judgment on. The text says, guilty, just even in that attitude of sitting in judgment over and against another person, we ourselves are doing the very same thing. God is the righteous judge, and not, it's not our role to do that. And he's just in punishing wrongdoing, all wrongdoing. So those we learn about God, we learn that he is just, and he operates out of not an emotive response to things. He operates out of a standard of justice, which has been set. And then we learn that all of us then are judgmental, and therefore all of us, for big things or for little things, are guilty. But we learn something also in the text about God. Look with me in chapter 2, uh, verses 3, 4, and 5. We learn, don't you see in verse 4, how wonderfully kind and tolerant and patient God is with you. Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that in God's kindness, he is intended for you to turn from your sin? And so the second thing that we learn about God is, yes, that he's just. We also learn that God is kind, he's tolerant, 
and he is patient, and he is these things for a very specific purpose. And the goal or the heart behind these things is God's desire for recognition in our own lives that we would see, not only that we sit in judgment, that we would see that he's kind, tolerant, and patient, and that we would respond in repentance. Think again about our teaching in the book of Genesis and the story of Noah. God decided to send in his judgment a flood to wipe out humanity. In his mercy, he orchestrated that Noah and his family would be those saved from the flood. But reminder again, God didn't just do that instantaneously and say, all right, this Tuesday the flood is coming. That's it. I'm done with all of you people. A hundred years God waited and said, anybody else? I'm giving you guys a chance to turn in repentance to me again for 100 years before he acted on that. And so it was as if God was giving them a crazy object lesson to say, I'm inviting you to turn from your ways, recognize the reality of judgment that's coming, and repent. And this is, this is all too often where we fail in kind of holding these things in balance in our minds. And it's a very difficult thing to do, to hold the idea that God is just, and that God will judge rightly, and that God is also patient and kind and tolerant in our minds. And this is too often probably where we land or where we err in contemporary North American society. We love to land, if we have an option to hold those two things in tension, we will often, for any particular thing, overemphasize tolerance, patience, and kindness. The French skeptic Voltaire once said, Ah, I'm not worried about God. God will forgive. That is his business, Voltaire said. It's just his fundamental orientation. God will forgive, which is true. But the image of God as gentle and soft and kind and tolerant of everything and everyone is highly pervasive in our culture. But it doesn't square with the reality of the biblical text. Last night, there was a sketch on Saturday Night Live where one of the cast members plays the devil and makes social commentary. And he says uh, uh, about God, he says, Oh, God, I don't worry about him. He's all loving. He's tolerant of all kinds of stuff. That's his thing. That's, that's who he is, which it is. But again, a God with all fluff, without a sense of justice, is no God at all. It's like a parent who just lets their kids do whatever they want in their house. And just says, all right, who cares? Uh, I'm kind, patient, and tolerant. Do whatever you want. You know, I'll see you when you're 18. Some of us know parents like that, maybe. Maybe some of us had parents like that. But that, that attitude to say, ah, I don't care at all. Just, I'm kind, I'm tolerant, I'm patient as a parent. Just, it doesn't matter to me uh, that there are no standards whatsoever. Would, would, if we allowed that to go unchecked with children, uh, it would just be a recipe for disaster. Our kids would eat nothing but like chocolate for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. They would treat everyone they met as their personal servants. Uh, they would grow up into egomaniacal human beings doing whatever they wanted with no thoughts whatsoever for consequences or for others around them. And so even as a parent, we understand and try and wrestle with this tension. I'm patient, I'm kind, I'm tolerant, but there are also standards which need to come into play in life. And that's where this text 
we learn another shocking thing about ourselves. And that is that even though God is kind and tolerant and patient, we are persistently stubborn. Listen to Romans chapter 2, verse 5. Because of the stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, God is patient, he's kind, he's tolerant, he's demonstrated these things to you, but because of your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Continuing in verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they have done. Those who persist in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, those who reject the truth, and those who will follow evil, there will be wrath and there will be anger. And so even the text is trying to help us understand how to keep these two things linked in our mind. That God is tolerant and God is patient, but even so, even in the very presence of his tolerance and patience, we are hell-bent on our own destruction and sinfulness and stubbornness and evil. And as a result, God's justice is just and right because it is based on our actions towards him. And more fundamentally, it's based on his righteous character. So at this point, you might still be saying, all right, but I'm still not 100% clear on how God's wrath could be good news in any way. Well, God's wrath can be good news for us because look at verse 16 of chapter 2. This is the message that I proclaim, he says. This is part of the message of the gospel, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge, and he will judge everyone's secret life. Part of the message of God's wrath is the fact that if it were up to us, and if the world unfolded as it normally would, without God's intervention in any way, and without his gracious providence to us, there are things that are wrong in our world that we would not collectively or individually have the capacity to put right. Or we try. We have mechanisms in society and in other ways that we try to make sure that wrong is punished and that right is upheld as a standard, but we would fail in certain categories. We would be unable to get everything set right. And so the fact that God's righteous standards will be upheld, if not in our life, then at the end of time when God will come to judge every person for the things that have been done and undone, ought to be received by us as profoundly good news. Because some people have been profoundly hurt by other people in their lives, have been wounded very, very, very deeply. And without a sense of justice of saying, I need to rely on God to put things right, I trust that God's standards will be upheld, our personal temptation then is to fall into vindictiveness and respond emotively and say, it's up to me to put this thing right. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. And there's some situations where that's beyond the realm of our possibility, our control, or good, sensible behavior. 
Some people have wronged and wounded us so deeply. Or some things exist in our world that are so wrong that we couldn't, through every initiative that we could undertake, put them right. And so we deeply need as individuals and as a whole, as humankind, to say, I sure hope somebody has a standard by which things are being judged. I sure hope that someone will put things right. Because there are things wrong in our world. There are things wrong in my life. There are wounds and hurts that have occurred. And I know that I cannot right those wrongs on my own. Much as sometimes we try and think that it would be helpful to do so. And so the scripture teaches that we would leave that to God who judges all people justly by the things that have been done and undone. We'll explore a little more as we go through the book of Romans. The question that falls logically out of that is, well then, does God just judge us by our works or is there something else that is related to this question of his justice? Is it what I do or is it what he has done? And so there is in this text for us and in the book of Romans kind of a good news, bad news scenario. And right in the middle of it, the phrase, but now, ought to make the transition in our minds. And so the good news is that there is a just standard that exists. The bad news is because we have failed to meet that standard, that we are, for every one of us, we are, the scripture uses the language of we're enemies of God. We are objects of his wrath because God by his nature and by his character, must set things right. And so therefore, if I have done something wrong, then God will hold me to account for that. And so that's profoundly bad news. The Bible is clear that God's wrath is directed against those who choose to remain in a condition of enemies of God, who reject Christ, who reject his work, and Jesus clarifies that in John chapter 3. He's speaking with a very, very religious person named Nicodemus who wants to know if he's going to make it to heaven. And we often will focus on John 3:16, But in the discussion in John chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus is very clear and says, Whoever believes the Son has life, but whoever rejects the Son of God will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This past week, I had the privilege of sitting with two women in their 90s and praying with them. And when you sit with someone who's dying and when they're reflecting back on their life, they're usually not in a position where they're trying to advocate or convince you of their own goodness. Usually, they're trying to say, you know what? I've got some things in my life that were wrong, and I need to make sure that I let God know that I'm sorry for them in some way. Oftentimes when we get to the end of our lives, we realize with a precision and with a clarity that we may not be as good as sometimes we think that we are. And as you look through the pages of Scripture, we have to fight against the cultural tendencies to think of ourselves as fundamentally good human beings who just need some tweaking because the pages of Scripture teach us that fundamentally each of us has a sinful nature and that we respond to that and therefore because God is just and holy that we are his enemies. But 
there are incredibly good news in those two words, but now. Because we deserve, because of the wrong things that we have done and the good things that we've left undone, to sit under the judgment of Almighty God. But that's why these words, but now, are profoundly good news. Because through what Jesus has done, but now we have been able to be moved to a position where we are spared from God's wrath. And we move from judgment to freedom. Right from the book of Genesis, we understand that God has a plan to deal with the human sin condition in a way that satisfies his just standards and does not result in annihilation completely of every person who ever lived. God put in place a plan whereby you and I can be spared from the wrath of God and moved into a place of judgment, from judgment to freedom. And Paul uses in his writings the language of making a turnaround of but now moment where we come to understand that we were under the wrath of God, but now because of and through the saving work of Jesus, he has enacted something new in our life. In 1 Thessalonians 1 verses 9 and 10, it says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God to wait on his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, who delivers us from God's wrath. And so something profound and amazing happens when you and I choose to accept the reality of what happened on the cross by invitation to it. There's only one way to be saved from the wrath of God. And that's why as we go into this series, we're going to celebrate communion more regularly together. And I'm going to ask the team if they would come and lead us in some songs of response. I'm going to ask those uh, elder couples who are serving at the tables if they would make their way there. And the image that I want to cement in our mind as we move into a place of receiving the elements, the bread which represents Christ's body which is broken for us, and the blood which represents his, uh, the cup which represents his blood poured out for us, is that image of a shield. A lot of us, uh, if you have uh, kids in your home, you think about and have a lot of princess stories going on, where you've got the brave and valiant knight who goes out to save the princess with his sword and with his shield, but they always seem to encounter a dragon. And the dragon always breathes fire, and the knight would surely be annihilated except for their shield which they hold up and it functions as a protective mechanism for them that is able then to save them from all of the things, the bad things that would surely happen to them. Part of the language that's used even in uh, the New Testament related to what it is that God did for us in Christ on the cross is that but now language of a shield that if we come to the place where we acknowledge and receive that which Jesus did for us on the cross, that God and in Jesus, his blood functions as a shield for us. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. You can't take credit for this because it was a gift from God. It says, you were once far away from God, living apart from Christ. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now 
you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ Jesus. For Christ himself has bought peace to us. He did this through his own body and his death on the cross. And so as we move into this time of reflection on what it is that Christ did for you, there's a few responses that you might want to take. The first response might be for you if you've never actually said, do you know what? I need to move to that place in my life where I experience the saving work of Jesus, where I say yes to God and I have that but now moment in my life where I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. If you want to experience that, then there'll be people at the prayer stations who can pray with you and lead you through an experience of asking and exploring that more and submitting your life to God. You might be here this morning, you say, you know what, I, I think I committed my life to God a long, long time ago. But it's kind of become so familiar, so routine to me that I'm almost in some ways immune to the fact that I do all kinds of things on that list and I really don't feel any responsibility or I don't feel in any way that I'm sorry for those things. I gossip. I do all kinds of stuff and there's just no sense of gravity to those things in my experience. The text reminds us again that not only is God patient and kind, but also God is just and he will hold us to account. And so you may want to take some time to just examine your heart and say, God, I need to ask you to shine a light into my life. And if there's anything in there that I have done or left undone that violates that standard of justice and righteousness, I want to ask your forgiveness at this moment and ask yet again that you would repay and do away with the consequences of sin in my life. You may want to come to the table and say, I want to celebrate the fact that God's work in my life and my acceptance of Jesus' work on the cross will protect me from the wrath of God in the day of judgment. It's profoundly good news. And so you may want to come to the table with a posture and an attitude of thanksgiving and say, God, I thank you that Jesus and his work on the cross is enough for me. I want to thank you, God, that I once was lost, once was far from you, but now through the blood of Christ, you brought me near. And so we'll just take a few moments and you can spend some time reflecting, asking God to do a work in your life by his spirit. And then when you're ready, you can move to the table and those who are serving will offer you the bread and the cup. You can participate there or you can take it back to your seat and participate. If you're uh, not a regular part of Jericho Ridge, but you're a member of God's family, you're welcome to the table. We don't uh, police it in any way. If you want to move to the prayer stations and celebrate with someone and say, I've got uh, something I just need to thank God for in my life, please feel free to do that as well. If you've got someone else that you want to lift before Jesus in prayer, then feel free to do that at this time as we move into singing.